turn to Isaiah chapter 53. It's on page 614. If you would like to use a Bible from the church, there should be one on the back of the pew right in front of you. Otherwise, turn to Isaiah 53. This morning I want to read verses uh, 10 through 12, although I'll probably just look primarily at verse 10 this morning. Thank you guys for leading us as we had the privilege of singing to the Lord. I appreciate these guys and the work that they do to help us to sing praises to God. But now this is God's word for us. And beginning at verse 10, this is what God says. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. You may be seated. <coughs> Father, thank you. For your word. There's no word like your word. And thank you, Father, for who your word speaks of and describes the Lord Jesus Christ. For there is no one like the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, Father, our prayer is that with the help and the presence of your Spirit, you would be at work in these moments of continued worship, that we would worship you before the word this morning. So help us to that end. Father, we, we do not merely want to be better informed of some things. We want to be transformed as we look at your word. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're looking this summer at Isaiah Chapter 52, verse 12, through chapter 53, verse 12. 52, 13 through 53, 12. These 15 verses are our subject matter for this summer. It's also our summer scripture memory passage. We're trying to memorize this passage for this summer. And these 15 verses, as we've noted... Uh, consist of five stanzas. This, this is a, a bit of a song, if you would, a poet, poetical song, and yet it's a piece of poetry that is prophecy. It, some 700-plus years before Jesus ever arrives, uh, Isaiah is poetically describing some of his work and some things about him through these five stanzas. And as we've noted, there's a, a structure to these five stanzas. The first stanza, uh, chapter 53, 
13 through 15 correspond with now this fifth stanza, uh, verses uh, 10, 11, and 12 of chapter 53. The second stanza corresponds with the fourth stanza, and then the third stanza in the center there is a standalone by itself. But the fifth stanza that, that we're beginning to look at this morning, and we will probably look at it this morning and then our next time together, Lord willing, in Isaiah 53, we will pick up and look at another facet of this passage. So for the most part, this morning, we will look primarily just at verse 10. Two things I want us to think about from verse 10. The decree to afflict the suffering servant. And then the decision wouldn't be wrong to even put decree in this one as well. The decree or decision to acclaim the suffering servant. It was just like what we learned in the first stanza uh, back in chapter 52, verses 13 through 15. Uh, this fifth stanza uh, covers the same kind of material. Uh, both describe, the first stanza and the fifth stanza, both describe aspects of the humiliation of Jesus, and yet also the exaltation of Jesus. Both the first stanza and now this fifth stanza zero us in upon the sufferings of Jesus, but also the glories of Jesus. Did you see how verse 10 captures that? It was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was the will of the Lord to afflict humiliation and suffering upon Jesus. The Lord meaning God, God the Father here in this passage. And yet, before we're done with verse 10, it also says, but the will of the Lord um, uh, will, um, uh, shall prosper in his hand. So it is God's will that Jesus be crushed. It is God's will that Jesus prosper or be glorified or be exalted, if you would. Among other things, by framing verse 10 by the terms of the will of the Lord and the will of the Lord, the will of the Lord to crush him, the will of the Lord to prosper his hand. Verse 10 helps us to see that concerning the work of Jesus Christ, concerning his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, uh, that nothing unfolded in Jesus' life that was unexpected. We, 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 don't, we, don't have, we don't have a category when we talk about Jesus and what he has come to do and what he had, has, has already done. We, we don't have a category of a plan B. There's, there was no afterthought. Well, this isn't working. What else are we going to try? And among other things, Jesus is not a hapless victim, but someone all along who was aware and committed to carrying out the eternal plans and purposes of God in his life. Nothing unexpected 
unfolds in Jesus' life. Unexpected, I should qualify this, unexpected at least to God. There was, there's never been a thought in God's mind about anything, really, but in particularly in reference to Jesus, like, what are we going to do now? Didn't see that one coming. And what Isaiah is doing is 700 years before these things happened, Isaiah is telling us what's going to happen. It, 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 and uh, it, it, so that it didn't have to be unexpected uh, to anyone. The plan was written down. It's in the book. Read the book. The book is much better than the movie, as always is the case. In fact, um, now, Peter does this in the sermon, his first sermon in Acts 2, but he does it in the form of a prayer in Acts 4. It's so interesting that, that Peter captures this notion that what unfolded in Jesus' life was uh, uh, not an unexpected uh, unraveling of an otherwise good plan, uh, uh, but everything fell into place according to plan. And, and Peter prays. In uh, Acts 4, verses 27 to 28, how he acknowledges how um, the, the entire people of the city of Jerusalem conspired together against Jesus, whom he says in his prayer, whom, Lord, you anointed. But, 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 the, but the, the hand of Herod and the hand of Pilate and the, and the hand of the Gentiles and the, and the hand of all the peoples of Israel conspired together. But it says, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. In other words, God had set out a plan. Revelation 13, 8 reminds us that the Lamb of God in one sense was slain before the foundation of the world. It was the plan was already put in play. And so when he's actually slain in real time, in real space, in history, again, this is not an unexpected twist to an otherwise good plan. This is the eternal good plan working itself out according to plan in time and space and history. This is planned in advance, in advance. Jesus was put forth as the one who would be crushed. And yet in advance, Jesus was put forth as the one whose hand would prosper. Now, why was this the plan? Well, because if you would, something necessary had to occur. Think of the term necessary as it's located in Luke 24, verses 25 and 26 and 27. And remember, this is after the resurrection of Jesus, and he meets up with these guys on the road to Emmaus, and they're totally bummed out because, like, man, I don't know what happened, but it just, it just went sideways. Jesus was murdered, and, and it was buried, and, and this wasn't at all what we thought. We, I mean, we thought that Jesus was the anointed one, the Messiah, and he would come and he would bring God's kingdom and everything would turn out wonderful. And, and here we are just utterly bummed out that it, it didn't work out the way we thought. And, and, and Jesus comes up alongside them and starts talking with them. And they're so bummed out they don't even recognize Jesus is 
no longer dead. He's been raised. He's, he's talking to them. And, and, and he says to them, as they were saying to him, dude, don't you know the bad thing that happened in Jerusalem? I mean, this is horrible. He says, oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had spoken. In other words, this is, this is not unexpected. It was written down. And he says, was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and then enter into his glory. And then in verse 27, he says, and beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. In other words, it's not unexpected. I can't help but think I, I don't have the transcript. I wish I had a tape recording of it, of, of Jesus' conversation with those guys on the road to Emmaus. But we're just told he, he, began, he started with the Old Testament and he explained how these things have always, this is, there's nothing unexpected. It's always been the plan. And he says it was necessary that Christ should suffer. Now, why was that necessary? On the one hand, it depends, well, it depends on what you mean by necessary, but on the, on the one hand, it wasn't necessary that Jesus should die on the cross. I mean, what I mean by that is that nobody outside of God required it of God. There was, there was no external force saying, hey, God the Father, boy, you really blew it this time. You better get Jesus down there on that cross. I mean, and I require it. I mean, in other words, who obligates the Lord to do anything? Uh, who, who mandates that the Lord would rescue rebellious human beings? No, no, nothing external to God made it necessary. And yet, what made it necessary is that as the Lord should decide and desire to save rebellious humanity, then it became necessary that Christ would need to die to accomplish that. In other words, the, the necessity was internal. It, it was consistent with the very nature and being of God himself. If God should save rebels, then, then someone is going to have to be substituted to secure the salvation of those rebels so that they would be pardoned of their rebellion and cease to be rebels. Someone would need to come and remedy that. Could have just left it alone could have just left you and I in our natural condemned state. And that would have been God just acting justly. But for God to want to rescue someone like me, for God to choose to rescue someone like you, it became necessary that Jesus would be put forth. It became necessary for God to decree that Jesus be crushed. Elsewise, there's no provision. And so it says there in verse 10 of Isaiah 53, 
it was the will of the Lord to crush him. And yet I left off the very first word in verse 10, didn't I? It says, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. So that begs us to peek just for a second back at verse, uh, the end of the, some of the tail end of verse 9. Remember it says there, and although he had done no violence and there was no deceit found in his mouth. In other words, uh, wow. Why, why was it God's will to to crush Jesus. He had done nothing wrong. He had committed no violence. There, there was no deceit in his mouth. He was flawless and perfect. And yet, that's what's the contrast in it. Here's the one who doesn't deserve to be crushed. And yet it was the will of God to crush this one in whom there was no deceit found in his mouth. The one who had committed no violence is the one who now great violence would be perpetrated upon him. He was, he has put him to grief. It also says in verse 10 that his soul was offered up to make an offering for guilt. Now, there's lots of things that we can describe, even from this passage that we've been looking at for the, these weeks over the summer, that uh, Henri Min did to Jesus. And back in chapter 52, verse 14, uh, it, he, was, he was abused by men uh, to the point that uh, he, he was even hard to look at, even hard to recognize. He was so physically brutalized. Chapter 53 and verse 3, verse 7, verse 8, and verse 9. It was men who despised him. It was men who rejected him. It was men who oppressed him. It was men who afflicted him. It was men who wanted to throw his body out on the trash dump and bring further shame to him. It says, yeah, this is all the things that, to, to borrow from Acts chapter 2, that wicked men did to Jesus. And, and yet, even what the wicked men did to Jesus was a part of God's eternal plan, for it was the Father's will to crush His Son. The Lord, the Lord God ordained the horrific, inexplicable, incomprehensible experiences of suffering upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You talk about someone who has walked through a season of trauma, abuse. It is not glib to say Jesus knows what it's like. He is a sympathetic high priest. He knows what it's like to be traumatized and abused. And yet, to press this even further, it wouldn't be a stretch. In fact, some translations translate verse 10, and yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. Some translations, and this is perfectly reflected in the word translated, and it was the pleasure of the Lord to crush him. Whoa, 
That even, that, 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 that even stiffens the reality of this. God was pleased to crush his son. He didn't just like say, well, okay, we've got to do this, and let's reluctantly do this. God's kind of kicking and dragging his feet to, to put forth his son on the cross. No, God was pleased to do this. God was pleased to crush his own son. God was pleased to put his own son to grief. God was pleased to arrange his son to be offered up as a sacrifice. The, this, this is, and remember, this is crucifixion. This is the most appalling, reprehensible, inhumane manner of death and suffering. God was pleased for that to fall upon Jesus. God put forth Jesus who suffered the very unrelenting, unrelivable terrors of divine justice. Because ultimately, with all of the stuff that Jesus went through and put up with that was perpetrated against him by mankind, that, that doesn't fully take into account uh, what God himself put upon Jesus. Jesus, I'll repeat again, suffered the very unrelenting, unrelivable terrors of divine justice. God put upon his son Jesus uh, the full hellish fury that he had toward sin. The full measure of infinite wrath, moved by the full measure of infinite righteousness, brought upon Jesus the full measure of infinite punishment. God was pleased to do that. It was the will of God to do that. And yet in doing that, while the death of Christ shows the, it absorbs the full measure of infinite wrath, moved by the full measure of infinite righteousness, uh, that which brought about upon Jesus the full measure of infinite punishment, all of which displays and expresses the full measure of God's infinite and eternal love. You see, by, by me saying that this has always been the plan, this is a part of the eternal decrees of God to put forth his son, Jesus, to rescue sinners. What that means is that, that God, there's never been a time that God hasn't loved his people. He's never had an afterthought. Say, oh, yeah, I, I guess I'll go ahead and love them after all. No, folded into the eternal plans to put forth Jesus as the one who would rescue his people, is really coincides with his eternal plan to love a people forever. It was the will of the Lord. It was the pleasure of God to crush Jesus, to put him to grief, that his soul might be offered up as a sacrifice for guilt. It was the pleasure of God that Christ would bear our sins in his body. It was the pleasure of God that Christ 
was made sin. He who knew no sin. It was the pleasure of God that Christ be made a curse for us in our place. God was pleased to do these things, to dump on Jesus eternal agony and torment. He was pleased to do it on our behalf. He was pleased to do it to save us from our sins. He was pleased to do it because of what it would accomplish. He was pleased to do it because of the glorious outcome. It was God's will to save a people for himself. It was God's will that that salvation come through Jesus. And the eternal plans and purposes of our God to eternally love a people have forever been in play and, and forever in the process of being worked out so that it was God's pleasure to see the outcome of Jesus who fulfills the eternal pleasures, uh, purposes of God uh, in our salvation. Jesus who uh, accomplishes our redemption. Jesus who rescues a people for himself. For it is Jesus who does these things successfully. Cancels the record of debt that stood against us. Reconciles us in our enmity against God and God's enmity toward us, satisfies eternal divine justice of being lawbreakers, brings us from death to life, and joins us to Jesus himself. The decrees of God to afflict the suffering servant. Not an afterthought, an eternal plan. And then just briefly, I was going to tell you, I'm going to warn you, I'm going to spend the most amount of time on the first point and a little bit of time on the second point because I think next time we'll flip it. We'll spend more time on the second point, just kind of balance it out there. Because as it goes on in verse 10, for when his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. In other words, we see this decree not only to afflict the suffering servant, but we see this decision to acclaim, to exalt, to glorify this suffering servant. This is a big pivot right here in this verse. It was the will of the Lord to crush and humiliate Jesus. It is the will of the Lord to prosper and to exalt Jesus. It says, and he will see his offspring. This is why it was the pleasure of God to crush Jesus, because he knew that his mission would be successful. He could call it in advance that Jesus will not stay dead in the grave. He will rise again, and in rising again, he will secure a people for himself. He will see his offspring. God's will to crush Jesus pleased the Father because Jesus would succeed. God's will to, 
to, to, to, to, to crush Jesus is folded into it, pivots, and it goes right back into God's will to prosper Jesus. In the resurrection of Jesus, it, it is proof in the pudding, if you would, that he has succeeded, that his mission is secure, and that he will have a people. Verse second part of this is not only will, will his offspring, will his days, will he see his offspring, his days shall uh, prolong. I, I would suggest to you that that's kind of an idiomatic expression, uh, m- meaning that uh, he will live forever. Or as Jesus himself says in Revelation. Chapter 1, verse 18, I died, and behold, I live forevermore. His days shall be prolonged forever and ever and ever. This is why it was the will of the Lord. This is why God was pleased to put forth Jesus, because he knew that Jesus would succeed. His mission would be accomplished. He, he would rescue a people and that he would live on eternally. And in the will, in the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. As I've already been saying, I'll say it again. He will prosper in his mission. That's why God was pleased to put forth Jesus. This is why God was pleased to crush Jesus, because his death will accomplish its intended purpose. It is in the death of Jesus that everything needed to be accomplished was accomplished to secure the salvation of God's people. God's not wringing his hands on this afternoon or this morning saying, boy, we sure went through a lot of work to offer salvation. I sure hope it works out good for somebody. God is not fretting or worrying uh, uh, about the unfolding of his eternal plans. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit on this day are rejoicing in the good, final, completed uh, plans. It was enough so that even Jesus, cognizant of his dying on the cross, simply says, it is finished. I did it. I have succeeded. My hand shall prosper. Now, what are we to think about that? Are we to go, yeah? Are we to yawn? Are we to say, that's nice? Are we having lunch yet? Well, we think about the success of Jesus. We think about the, the, the hand of God to prosper Jesus, even through his plan to crush Jesus. Then you and I, of all people, ought to be people who are eager and mindful and alert of the fact that our lives should consist of thoughts and emotions and verbiage and words and attitudes that are filled with praise for Jesus. This shouldn't be something we could quite get over easily. 
This shouldn't be something that, uh, all right, let's move on. Where's the big stuff at? Now, the, the big stuff already broke out in history. And, and we are the little people uh, who are the beneficiaries of the fact that the big stuff has occurred. And so we are people who ought to have folded into our patterns and rhythms of our life. May glory and honor and praise and majesty belong to Jesus. God was pleased to crush his son. God was pleased to prosper his son. In other words, God was more than happy to rescue us. Are you happy about that? Good answer. Yeah, from the mouth of children. Yeah. And if not the children, then God will cause the rocks to cry out. My point is, is that it, this, is no, this is no laborious task to gather and uh, give praise to Jesus to, insofar as we grasp what has occurred. What's, what's up with these people? Why do they want to gather and praise Jesus? For God has prospered Jesus in the most magnanimous way we can think of. God has highly exalted Jesus and has given him the name that is above every name. In fact, truth be told, before the dust completely settles in history, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, whether it's to one's salvation or to one's damnation, every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord, he will have a people. And so we wrap it up by just asking, so are you in or out? What God has been working through and for, and in for all eternity is to put forth his son to rescue people like you and me. A phrase that's used in our culture today uh, is don't be on the wrong side of history. Well, probably most people that use that have come to conclusions that seem really fruit loopy and goofy to me. Uh, but in this matter, it is appropriate. God's eternal plans, the whole movement of time and space and history is going somewhere. And where that is going is in the death and successful redemption uh, of sinners through Jesus Christ. And any and all who even this morning, who maybe even previously before you showed up here this morning or even uh, uh, as the sermon went on, had no thought or no regard as to what the big stuff is about Jesus, but nevertheless, turn to Christ. Trust only in Jesus. This has been God's eternal plan to rescue people like you and I through the death of his son, Jesus Christ. And it wouldn't be an odd thing that in God's eternal plans, he brought you here this morning to hear such stuff that you might turn from yourself, you might turn from your sin, that you might even turn from notions of meritorious religiosity, that you might throw all that stuff away and you might turn to Jesus.
trust only in him. He is Lord of lords and King of kings. He is the world's only Savior. Only Jesus could successfully be crushed for your sin. So, Father, we thank you for what you've done in and with your son, Jesus. We're so grateful for the work of salvation and redemption that you have displayed. And we're, we're taken aback that you would take the one in whom there was no deceit in his mouth and you would crush him when most of us have a sense that if anyone needs to be crushed, it's probably us. But you offer a way out this morning. You offer salvation through your son today. And so, Father, help us to see that the curse, the punishment, the wrath deserved for our sin has been placed on Jesus. Insofar as all who call upon Jesus shall now be saved. Father, rescue your people this morning. For we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.